Thanks for tuning in to Loser Kid Them All podcast. This is episode 120. I do not have Scott with me today because this is kind of a random episode, and I'll explain it here in a second. But before we get into that, I want to thank our sponsors, Flipping Out Pinball, Zach and Nicole Manny. They are awesome. If you're looking for great quality customer service, I highly recommend them and their team. They've done leaps and bounds for me and Scott. Uh, Labyrinth was just released. Zach is one of those dealers. So if you want to get Barrels of Fun's new game, Labyrinth, that stole Pinball Expos 2023 and raised expectations. Or Elton John from JJP, which is a beautiful game within its own right. We'll be talking about those games next episode. We'll be recording Thursday. But I wanted to hurry and get this episode out um, because this episode has been two and a half years in the making. Let me explain. I reached out to a couple friends in the pinball industry two and a half years ago about a man that I kept seeing on Williams Games and who was kind of a permanent fixture in the Tilt, the Battle Save Pinball documentary. Larry DeMar has done some amazing things, and I just don't feel like he gets enough credit. Uh, I've been messaging this man, and ever since he left pinball, he started up his own companies. He's worked with other partners. This man is constantly working. As you'll hear in this interview, he does roughly 70, 80 hours work a week, easily not including other responsibilities that he has to do. So it was hard to find some time to track this man down. But you know what? I messaged him that I was going to be in Chicago. I knew that's where he lived. And I said, hey, I'm going to be at Pinball Expo this year. I don't know if you'll be there, but it'd be nice to sit down and get that interview with you. And he said, you know what? Let's aim for Thursday and let's do it. So on Monday this past week, the week before Expo started, messages say, hey, we're still good to go for this Thursday. And he said, I'm really sorry, Josh, but my wife has tested positive for COVID. I won't be able to make it. And so I told him that's okay. Uh, we'll figure out another time. And I thought that'd be the end of that. But as Expo showed up, uh, I got a message from Larry saying that he would be making it Saturday and that his wife was no longer had COVID and he he tested negative for five plus days. And so I said, well, let's go ahead and do that interview. I was actually in the middle of pinball Olympics. So I dropped everything, told Scott Denise and Banger J, sorry, I got to get out of here. And I, I zipped it right back to Pinball Expo, thanks to Joel Engelberth and his, his brother, Jared. And so I got back, I sat down with this man. You're going to hear in this interview, a lot of the games he's already, uh, that he has worked on. I mean, it, there's too much of a coincidence for me that he's worked on some of the best games that have ever been revered. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to spill him right now. I know I'm going to spill him again here in a second, but you got black Knight, You've got Adam's family. You got twilight zone, fun house, bonsai run. He was one of the ones that kind of helped with space shuttle. You're going to hear all this. It's amazing that this man has, I felt like helped kept pinball alive during the eighties and nineties and was a, was a pivotal instrument in helping pinball evolve over the years. He has been named the godfather of modern code by Josh Sharp, and I think it is very clear and evident when you hear it. Like I said, the reason this is a special episode, I had none of my recording equipment with me, so your YouTube video is not going to be there for Larry, but I do. I'm still doing an intro video, obviously, for YouTube. I appreciate those that, that are doing this, uh, watching it here. And so without further ado, Larry DeMar. I am super giddy because... The man that I'm sitting with today is an absolute legend. Uh, Josh Sharp has named him the godfather of modern, modern code. If, you know, if you're looking for a commonality between Twilight Zone, Adam's Family Funhouse, Black Knight, High Speed, 
World Cup Soccer 94. This man is the man. I've caught Larry DeMar with me. How you doing, Larry? I'm doing great. Well, that list of games from memory is pretty good. They are memorable games. They're just, they're fantastic. I, I mean, all these games have such an uh, impact on pinball history. And it's it's amazing that you you had your hand in all this. I just... What what made what brought you to Williams back in the eighties? Um, my story starts much further back. I grew up in Oak Park, Illinois, um, and my parents were good friends with Alvin Gottlieb and his family, and so I started playing pinball machines in his basement and in my best friend's basement. My best friend had a Cinderella, and. Um, in Alvin's basement, we played a game with a very target. I can't remember. I can't remember the the uh, the. Oh no, it was a, it was a roto spinner, not a very target. Okay. Um, and uh, and I just loved every excuse. Pinball was illegal in Chicago, and so we were playing pitch and bat games and bowlers and things like that. But but getting to play pinball machines was was unusual and a treat at the time, and I took that right. You know, my whole life looking for pinballs where I could find them. And then when I went to college, I spent a lot of time in the game room uh, or playing the pinballs that were right in the basement of my dorm. That's awesome. So um, going back to 1970, probably 1978, I was a junior or a senior in college and Bally's eight ball came out. Um, and it was one of the first electronic games, you know, we first had a night rider. Um, but when eight ball came out, we, we played it a lot. I was a pretty good pinball player. And at, in that particular game, you collect the balls around the play field and build up the rack of balls. Um, and when you fill up the rack of balls, it lights the super bonus light, which represents all the points for a rack. And then you start lighting a second rack. And um, when you fill up that second rack, the software clears it. And so your bonus actually goes down on the on that ball or the next ball. Because instead of getting, you know, one rack and 14 balls, one rack and 13 balls, you get one rack and zero balls where you're trying to refill the rack that it stole from you. And I was bitching about this um, you know, late one night when we were playing, um, maybe a little alcohol induced. Um, and somebody said to me, could you do any better? And I was studying computer science at the time. And the next day I sent letters to Williams, Bally and Gottlieb, all of which I had toured in Chicago, maybe a year or two earlier. Um, and long story short, Gottlieb and Bally never returned my my letter. We reached Alvin Gottlieb later, and it never reached him. Somebody screened it for him, um, even though it was personally addressed to Alvin Gottlieb. And um, from Williams, uh, David Poole called me back, called me in for an interview. Um, and my hometown was Chicago, so it was... Uh, interesting to come back from Boston to Chicago. But at the same time, I interviewed at Bell Labs, which is kind of like the Google of the time. Okay. okay. If you were in tech right now, if you're in tech, you know, and you're 
getting your degree it would be really cool to go work at a place like Google or Facebook or um, you know any of the the really super tech giants and Bell Labs was the Google of the time. And so Bell Labs, where I had interviewed also in Chicago, had made me an offer that had me working two days a week, going to school for my master's three days a week, um, paying me for five days of work and tuition. And Williams offered me a little less money and wanted me to come and work for five days. So I took the job at Bell in, uh, that would be September of 79. Um, and four months into it, um, I actually not four months in right, right around the time I took the job and Williams had offered me the job, Ken Fidesna at Williams and Ken is a legend, um, really the point person of all the greatness that happened at Williams, along with Mike Stroll, who really, um, had the philosophy of we're going to find really great people we're going to empower them to do what they do we're gonna hold our nose and ears a lot from the process um and kind of keep our hands off um and that that was mike stroll he was the president at the time and uh really set the stage for all the greatness of williams valley midway for the uh, 80s and 90s and Ken Fidesna was the point person who who ran the the uh, preschool, which was all of the people that, <laughs> that I worked with making games. Um, and he snuck me into the AMOA show in the fall of '79, right when I I took the job at Bell, and I just I just couldn't get the game thing out of my head. And a few months after. Um, after working at Bell, I called Ken back, said, you still have a position open? And literally in January of 1980, they were just starting to put together the Defender team to make Williams' first video game. And so um, I joined, I started, I was, I, I joined Williams and Literally upon arriving at Williams, I meet Steve Ritchie and Eugene Jarvis. Um, and they would become my mentors. And you just can't believe how lucky I was that that I was shown the ropes and, and under the wing of these two brilliant genius game designers. Yeah. Um, and I walked into Williams... Um, in the middle of a bit of a revolution, um, Mike and Ken and Dave Poole, Paul DeSalt was there, um, Chuck Blake, they were all creating the new Salad State Pinball, which they kind of did in a skunk works off site and then came in and started taking over the operation. And they had to work with a lot of guys, Steve Kordak at the top, who had been in the industry for 50 years, um, and, uh, and a team of people that made games with relays, designing very high-tech electromechanical systems to make these games work. 
and Steve and Eugene were trying to really move the envelope really quickly, which in that time frame um, had had culminated in firepower, okay. which uh, which went from kind of a you know um, more of a static experience to more of a a here's what we're doing over over a progression and and then adding the excitement of multi-ball which hadn't been seen and and really the first time of really jazzing up the the sound and speech um in a in a very quantum leap over phoenix and flash which were the stepping stones into let's use technology to be a little a little crazy and, and more exciting. And, and just to kind of paint the scene of this, um, this rivalry between the old guard and the new guard, when they first added sounds to the games, the pinball machines before solid state were all chimes and all the early solid state games, um, we're done with chime units and they made chimes like pinballs, Knight Rider and Evil Knievel and uh, on the Williams side, Grand Prix and Hot Tip. Um, all those early games had chime units. And I think uh, Phoenix might've been the first game with a sound system. And when it was designed, everybody was internally had a big war over, no, we can't take the chimes out or no one will play it. It's not pinball. Um, and they ended up not only putting the chime unit in um, to the early games that had sound, they actually sent all communication to the soundboard through the solenoids that rang the chimes so that the system could always throw a switch and, and use chimes because everyone was going to hate the new sounds. And in the early games, they also put a score motor that just turned around when something would happen just to let you feel the vibration of the old motor that was in the, in the old games. So, um, not only did Steve and Eugene become my mentor, but, um, they were looking at a, at a, at a strong recruit for their side of this new revolution that was taking place in pinball. Is that kind of where high speed starts to come in? Because that seems to be really where the table started to turn with all that. You know, th- there were some really momentous building block steps. Like I said, I, I really um, put Phoenix as the first step, then maybe Flash, yeah. um, then Gorgar, then Firepower. And high speed would be the next quantum step in that ladder of um, of great capability being added onto what preceded it. Um, and uh, actually, I, I probably missed Black Knight in that yeah, sequence. Black Knight, yeah. Between um, between, I guess Black Knight was after Firepower. That was uh, the first first of two games I worked on with Steve. Um, and when I got to Williams and I was, I was working as an employee of Williams for one year okay. in that one year, I did more things and more work and more progress and more to show for it than any year I've worked in my career. 
I'm always working like a dog. Okay. I, I work, I work until it's time to go to bed or, or time for some obligation. But, um, in that one year, um, I programmed Scorpion was my, actually, my first game was Las Vegas with Roger Sharp and Steve Epstein. Okay. That would have been a great. Okay. And I, and I entered the business, um, as a, as a new programmer in pinball and Roger Sharp, I had his book. Okay. I, yeah. you know, the, the movie of the man who saved pinball, I had his book and had read all about this journey. And, you know, I was starstruck to have, you know, Steve Ritchie and Eugene Jarvis, you know, okay. They're, 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 they're this gruff guy that, that, you know, designs games and and Eugene I thought was really kind of a nerdy guy and and had no understanding of what an amazing amazing creator and inventor he was. Um, but right, but but all of a sudden, you know, hearing you're gonna um, meet Roger Sharp and and he and Steve have drawn a game on a napkin. Uh, Barry Ausler drew it out and they wanted me to be the programmer of this game. Um, and so Roger and Steve were both in New York city at the time and they visit Chicago on a weekend and the, the place is closed and I come in on the weekend and spend time going over the game and talking about rules and the like. And then for lunch, we went out to Chicago game company, which was a local arcade on Western Avenue, uh, where we often tested games and we played some pinball there. Um, and I am, I'm a, I'm a, I, I am a, I was a really good pinball player in the time and I'm still a pretty good pinball player today. And I of course wanted to impress Roger and I couldn't hit anything but a rubber post on any ball <laughs> of any game that I played with him that day. Okay. Um, I, I remember specifically um, we were playing big game in cheetah two. Uh, games from Stern at the time that were the medium-sized wide bodies, um, and uh, they were they were putting it putting the games through their paces, and I literally could not hit hit a shot in five or six games that we played, and so uh, Roger along the way um, not only came to know my pinball playing abilities, but um, he and I played as a doubles team in the early IFPA tournaments and did really, really well. So um, that was that was it. So Las Vegas was developed a little bit and was put on the shelf. It was resurrected um, as Jet Orbit. All, and the names were based on a three bank of drop targets on the left, five bank of drop targets on the right, Las Vegas, Jet Orbit. Um, and finally was produced as Barracora, which put two hours on the third target to make the nine letters go on the eight targets, which always struck me as crazy because they just could have spelled Barracora with one R. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, and it eventually came out um, several years after, after I first started on that game. Um, and then I did Scorpion, which was the second multi-ball game after Firepower on a wide body with a mediocre 
play field layout. And I got to tinker with some um, multitasking ideas that Eugene didn't do in Firepower that I thought we could, uh, um, we were always talking about multitasking where different different processes could do different things. And so I played with some of that on Scorpion. And uh, after having done a full game, um, it was time to revamp the whole Williams operating system. Um, it had been done a couple of years earlier and pinball was evolving and it really needed more capabilities. And um, it was a project that I talked about with Ken and Steve, but I didn't know at the time, but the management wasn't sure they should trust a guy that just got out of school and had no experience to try and develop the new system, which at the time you had to design it, develop it, and burn it into ROMs in mass quantities, and it couldn't change from game to game. Things couldn't be added and bugs couldn't be fixed um, because EPROMs were too expensive at the time. Um, And so after doing the, the first game successfully, which also let me learn every nook and cranny of the, of the old system. They let me do the new system. And so all at once, and Steve tagged me as programmer for Black Knight. And I was helping Eugene get the whole video game thing started. So all at once, I was working in two buildings on the new operating system, on the Black Knight pinball machine and on early work on the software that would be the the base system for Defender. And um, Steve is a perfectionist and generally takes several iterations of Whitewoods to develop a game. And so his time between his Whitewood passes on his game gave me a lot of time to work on the new pinball system and on the Defender stuff. And so in the first year, I did uh, Whitewoods of Las Vegas, Scorpion, the new pinball operating system, Black Knight, Jungle Lord, um, some base work on Defender operating system, some in-between work to develop for enemy development on Defender, and the crunch work before the show to put it in a track mode, high score table, and um, and lead the technical team to get chips burnt so we could put them in the uh, games at the show at AMOA. No wonder you work 70, 80 hours. You're just, you've been doing it since you got out of the gate. So that was it. And following, following the success we had with Defender, Williams opened up a bigger engineering facility on Kedzie Avenue, about a mile and a half from the California facility that was the pinball factory where we all worked um, and, this, and moved all the video game development there. And they, they hired a bunch of programmers. They built out a bunch of little tiny offices. And they had a terrible HVAC system <laughs> that caused us to all have to keep our doors open. And some of us, and I was the worst violator, um, uh, blasting a radio while I worked because this was before AirPods and, and, and great use of headphones were a thing. Um, and between the HVAC and the noise, um, 
Eugene and I, who had talked about leaving to start our own company, okay, just one day had had enough working at this new building that we said, let's give it a try. Um, and so we walked into Mike Stroll, who was the president of the company, and said to him, we're leaving. Well, what do you mean you're leaving? We're going to go off and try and make games on our own. Um, part of it, actually most of it, was just that the game designers were not recognized as um, valuable talent. And even though Mike had, you know, paid more than other companies, we were the make it or break it factor for, you know, millions or tens of millions of dollars of business. And uh, we're not being compensated as entrepreneurs. And so we decided we would go um, out on our own, make games, and then license them to companies that would buy them from us. Okay. And Mike said, Mike tried to talk us out of it. Um, there were some financial offers at the time. And, and we had kind of decided, we kind of decided this is what we were going to do. And Mike was before you do anything, I want you to come to New York with me and let's talk about this some more. And he flew Eugene and I first class to New York and we met with Luna Castro, who was the uh, chairman of the company at the time and, and uh, controlled the company. And he and Mike at the end of the day said, if you're going to do this on your own, I want you doing it for me. Um, and so we made a deal to, um, go on our own and have Williams support us with some of the tech. Um, they gave us an advance against royalties on our games and made a royalty deal that we liked the one we would have made with any company. Yeah. Um, and they said they, they, they said they wanted another game in six months. And, you know, that was key because, you know, a production line had been ramped up for defenders and they needed to keep the people in the factory working and fluent at making games. And my response was the only game you can have in six months is Super Defender. Gotcha. And so that is how Stargate was born. Gotcha. Um, and so uh, they lent us one, the, the development systems were thirty, forty thousand dollar computers called exercisers made by Motorola. Yeah. And these uh, they, they let us use even though there were two of us programming the game, they let us use one. We had a deadline of six months to have the game done. And so Eugene and I worked around the clock in the spare bedroom of my apartment. Um, and we created Stargate in six months after which we got our own facility, um, came up with a cheaper, better technology for making the, for doing the development and did uh, Robotron and Blaster um, as vid kits. Yeah. And so that, that was, that was the early days and video, the vid, we, we, after getting my big start in pinball, which is my bigger passion, um, video really took over. Um, and then in 83, um, in 83, the, I, 
Which crashed first, the home games or the or the? Uh, I want to say home home games did. Okay, there was the home game crash, maybe. In one order, one year after the other, the home games crashed and the video games crashed. And I was um, looking for my next gig at the time. Eugene left VidKids, left Chicago, moved back to California, got his master's at Stanford. And I uh, was pittering around with some ideas to try to do on my own a home version of Wheel of Fortune okay. for the for the computers that were out there. Um, and Joe Kamenko was at Williams trying to get his way into engineering. He was with the sales department, and the engineering group didn't really um, want him working with them. Okay. And he conned me into coming back with him and trying to make a pinball machine with him. And it's really a kind of a landmark point because Joe went to NASA and got the license for space shuttle. Okay. Okay. And he can, he uh, talked to Barry and got Barry to pull out a bunch of play fields. And Joe and I went in and we looked at a bunch of his old games, Barry Ausler, such a nice guy. And he was so prolific. Okay. Our, our, the, the bigger, you know, celebrity designers in the business, you know, did a game a year when they were good and sometimes a game every two years when when it was taking longer, either because it was such a, a spectacular um, set of things they were doing or just because um, things were going slowly for different reasons or, yeah. or writer's block. Okay, I've seen writer's block where where they're working on something and it's just not looking like they want it to be in there. One thing about the best designers, developers, producers, programmers, okay, they are almost all perfectionists, but every one of them is insecure. Yeah. And so there is a fear at all times that there's not enough. It's not good enough. Um, it's not going to be, you know, just loved and yeah. revered. It's only going to be good. Yeah. And so that causes, that causes, that can cause great delay of, of time when, when these people, um, you know, aren't sure and, and don't feel it when they're doing it. The super mega designers that we all know and love um, would would have a, a rate of putting out games of, of one a year or maybe one every two years if things didn't go well. Um, and this is due to this 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 perfectionist perfectionism married with insecurity. And Barry was a prolific playfield production machine. Okay. Okay, he, he, he could draw a new complete play field every week. And some of them, you know, some of them were magnificent, you know, just the most amazing games ever. And some of them were less magnificent. And in this process, he had a pile of drawings that were just things that he drew that never, that nothing ever happened. Nothing was ever done with them. And... Joe and I met with Barry and he started pulling out all his old play fields 
and he kind of, you know, and, and Joe was, was kind of being the point person and Joe had no experience making pinball machines. Um, he had uh, done some video game design for Williams out of his studio in Atlanta before joining the company. And he kind of, you know, was looking at things and we'll take this out of this game and the top of this one and the bottom of that one and we'll put it together and we'll make a space shuttle game. And he sold it to the powers that be and I agreed to come in four days a week to program it. And so that's what got me from doing video games, you know, back into the pinball circuit. Um, and I did um, work on that game and, and it, uh, pinball was, was, was really in the gutter in 82, 83. And this was in 1984. And the company was only a pinball company at this time. They, they were, at, you know, they were done with video games, video games, Maybe not. Maybe they were working on Star Rider. Star Rider was their Laserdisc yeah. game. Um, Laserdisc kind of kind of finished off video games, where video games were were waning. Laserdisc was this shiny thing. Dragon's Lair was a monster hit, um, and other games had some success to a lesser extent. And Williams put all of their video resources into Star Rider. They had kept pinball on the back burner with a, a small team making a very small number of games, but they kept all the know-how and all of the, the muscle memory of making them and producing them alive, you know, in 82 and 83. But, it was it was it was not a business and and they weren't gonna make money in video games. And um Firepower 2 done by Mark Ritchie just before this period had shown some spark of more interest in more game sales. And by the time we were heading to the show in 84 with Space Shuttle. Um, we didn't know it, but Luna Castro had put down an ultimatum. You need to get 5,000 orders for the game um, or we're closing, we're shutting the whole company down. And so this game went to the show. I think they got 7,000 orders. Um, the game, you know, was a hit. And then it was followed very quickly by Comet, a brilliant Barry Ausler, Python, Bill Futzenreiter game. Yeah. Um, and then we, Steve, I, I came and worked with Steve on high speed and that followed Comet. Um, so that really was a, you know, sort of a, uh, exponential or hockey stick type of curve from going out of business to, to pinball is, is really something again. Well, and I, I've kind of followed some of the stuff you've done in the past too, and it seemed like high speed was kind of the catalyst for more people getting into pinball. I know a lot of people, if I remember correctly, that's kind of how Pat Lawler came along too, is he played high speed a lot and loved it. And I know that even like Keith Owen nowadays, that's one of his games he attributes like high speed just captures you and, and captures the imagination, but it also was just such a, a fast and furious game. It kind of turned pinball on its head at that point. And so I guess the question I'm asking is, 
did did you see that coming with high speed and because like you said pinball was was dying and all of a sudden it just was an uptick so how how did you guys use that momentum to your advantage um it, it's a combination of a lot of things it's really interesting you mentioned Keith Elwin because you and I just met on the expo floor at Keith Elwin's masterpiece Godzilla yeah um and so my hats off to him uh for creating that game what a what a wonderful wonderful game um it, it was the convergence of a whole bunch of things at once that was also um benefited from the amount of time steve spent perfecting that game that game we probably worked on um a year and a half maybe longer um and we uh we were we were we were adding on to the things that we had done in the in the previous several games starting with black knight the new operating system in black knight supported multi-threaded programming so we could the biggest thing we could gain out of that was all kinds of use of time um, and we had, um, you know, mystery shot timers. We had time drop targets. We had um, a timed uh, bonus round at the end of the game. And when it came time for high speed, we first, over a giant, giant internal fight, okay, ended up getting the alphanumeric displays on the game. Nice. Okay, that was the first Williams pinball that had the alphanumeric displays. Um, Gottlieb actually beat us with those um, on a couple of games earlier. Um, and Gottlieb, while we were working on high speed, developed a game called Rock. And Rock had rock and roll instead of a, instead of a a synthesized space age sound going in the background. They actually were playing music. And fortune and this the master of the music was Dave Thiel, who I, I <laughs> revere. Yes. Um and I ran into him somewhere while we were working at high speed and he explained how they did it without having the processing power and memory that that was needed to really do music and pinballs. And he said, you know, they sampled one note, a C, yeah. and then they played the C back at different speeds to make it other notes. Awesome. So they so they just had, you know, uh, we're not talking megabytes, we're talking kilobytes. We're yeah. talking about, you know, a 2K or a 4K sample, which filled an EPROM or two, and we only had two or three EPROMs in the game. They sampled one note and they used software to make it play music. And I come back into Williams and I talked to Bill Parade, who worked with Eugene Jarvis on the sound for high speed and talked to Steve about it. And we decided we're going to do that too. Um, and the note that got sampled was Steve bringing in his guitar. Steve Rich is a great guitar player. Yeah. And he composed the music, the, the theme that played during high speed multi ball, 
He composed that whole riff and played it on his guitar, but he played one note for Bill Parade, and Bill Parade played the exact game that David Thiel had done in rock, which if I hadn't run into him and him being so proud to explain, you know, his cool technical trick, um, you know, we would have waited until um, probably Pinbot, which finally had a, it had a Yamaha synthesizer. Yeah. It was the first game where we actually put a synthesizer in a game, hired our first musician to do sound. Uh, Eugene was a, a, um, an ad hoc uh, musician. Uh, he played keyboard with Steve Ritchie, who played um, the electric guitar. Mark Ritchie played the bass guitar. And they had a band that played in Steve's basement or in the vid kid's office until our landlord said that couldn't go any longer. Um, so Bill sampled the notes, Steve composed the music. We laid it into the game and it was a cacophony because I had already done the entire game with sound calls and choreographed sound. Yeah. Um, and we were near the end of the game. I mean, this wasn't like we we had planned to do high speed with music in it. Um, and so we brainstormed over it and decided we would just put drums during the main play. And and Bill Pratt sampled a cymbal hit and he sampled a drum hit. And he again, uh, you know, created a, some drum riffs. And that was the background of the game so that all the sounds that were already done and sounded good could play over the drums and not clash with the music. And then during multiball, we took all of the dumb sounds and just made them a little boop, boop. We just, we took and dumbed them down yeah. so that the music could play and the sounds, except for award sounds, yeah. um, wouldn't be clashing with the music. It was interesting. I'm watching Steve's Elton John today at Expo, um, which you can't get to play because there's a line of 10 people at each of the three games here. But I'm watching the game and they keep ducking the music to let you hear a sound or hear a voice cue. Yeah. And so you got these wonderful Elton John tunes playing and they keep ducking down to, so they're solving the same problem in a different manner. Yeah. Um, which, um, it works, it works, but it's kind of like, you know, writing graffiti on a Picasso to me, hearing Elton John's music, keep getting ducked to, to let the game do what it has to, um, in communicating sound or, or instructions. Yeah. Um, so we got the alphanumeric displays in high speed. We, at the end, get sound, which, again, is, is just works great. And um, I got to tell the alphanumeric story a little bit first. Yeah, go for it. Um, I've told this many times, and I'm sure it's out there, but um, I envy what I am seeing at Expo right now because they are building these games with no expenses spared and then selling them with a real profit margin um, for buyers in their homes that want these as, as trophies, collectible trophies that they love. We were in a business where 
the games were bought by people that had to put them on a location and get quarters put it put in them and make a profit and the price that we could charge was really limited to around $2000 and there was and, and and we couldn't raise the price because we put something cool in a game that's what the market would pay um, and it went up at the very end into the 2000s but probably during the time of high speed it was like 1895 was what we sold a high speed for wow and putting in these alphanumeric displays which steve you know steve like we got to have these yeah and and we got uh the company that made the displays that was cherry and displays inc were the two display companies we got them to make prototypes and they were going to add you know i don't know maybe maybe fifty dollars uh maybe 75 100 i don't remember what it was at the time but they were going to add a significant cost that we really weren't in a good position to pass on. Um, there were um, three or four pinball companies at the time. They were all high volume, very competitive. And, and, and if you raised your price, you pushed a lot of business to the other company. So Steve and I are lobbying for it. And I've got them in the game in a prototype and I'm doing all kinds of different effects and showing how we would put the, the initials of the players. And I dreamed up a feature to make the displays worthwhile. I said, you know, we're going to put a jackpot in the game and we're going to show with the word jackpot, the jackpot growing. And we do it during multi-ball and it would be progressive where it would build and build and whoever hit the jackpot, which was going to be a really, hard thing to do, um, would collect it all and it would reset. Okay. And so we mocked it up. We're showing this and, and to management, it was insurmountable to add this much cost to the games. And there's a whole story of the designers can tell that the designers can tell you about taking, you know, taking drop targets out and taking mechanisms out. Um, and and it, it just wasn't solvable. And the mechanism story is fun because drop targets are very expensive and our drop targets for a while were very unreliable. Yeah. So they always got pulled out at the at the eleventh hour, starting with firepower, where firepower was a drop target game. It played so much better with drop targets. Um and because of cost and because of mostly because of reliability. Mike Stroll broke Steve and Eugene's heart at the eleventh hour, turning them into into touch targets, into bullseyes. Yeah. Um, and later on, designers would all put drop targets in their prototypes. Okay, not because they ever planned to use them, but as a way when they were told their games were too expensive. Okay, I'll take my drop targets out. And and so and I think it's still happening to this day, but not, so too. <laughs> but, but not 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 to the point um, where um, you see these modern games are beautiful. They are built up, and they are shoveling money into them for a market that wants it and will pay for it. Um, and. The side effect is it's created a real margin. Instead of making, you know, a few hundred dollars or three, four hundred dollars on a game, they're making thousands for each game with the markup. 
And that allows them to start and stop the lines and just make as many as people want whenever they want them. We had this whole problem that the line could never stop because we'd have to lay off everybody and we would lose ability and know-how. So we are in the office that Stephen and I are working on with Ken Fidesna. We're showing the demo and he's like, that's all wonderful. We can't afford them for the games. Um, And it went back and forth and I, I got really angry and literally I was standing on one side of the high speed prototype and Ken was on the other side and I pushed the game over, which would have, you know, knocked him to the floor or, or whatever, but he caught it and stood it back up. It, it also might've set the game uh, development back for two or three months. If that thing yeah. you know, fell in and went to splinters, um, like many things in life, um, we ended up with a compromise. We put the alphanumerics on the top two displays, left the cheaper numeric displays on the bottom two. And, and that's how peace was made between the factions. Um, it let us do a whole test and setting system where you could see what, you know, the settings in the game, you just have to go to a manual, you know, number three is number of balls. Number four is your tilt warnings. Number five, maximum credits. Yeah. Um, and so this brought in a whole new era there. Um, but it let us communicate the features. It let us put in things like this jackpot feature in a discernible way. Um, and it really was, was a huge step. Um, high speed really is said to be the first game where you were playing through a story and, and getting, getting those displays in there really, helped us tell the story and, and tell you what was going on. Yeah. Um, so, so that's, uh, and the, 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 um, other big feature firepower started. The feature was multi-ball starting in scorpion and then, um, black Knight. It's, it's, Let's make multi-ball an opportunity. Let's not just put the balls out there and, and have you hit things. Yeah. Let's have you make it an opportunity. In Black Knight, it was double and, and, and double and triple scoring. In Scorpion, it was it, however long you kept them in play, you got a bonus and could light extra ball and special. And then um, Black Knight, it was do a very difficult feat while all these balls are kind of messing you up. Yep. And you'll be really rewarded. And that has been the foundation of, of game design since 1986. Yeah. The games that, you know, I just got done playing Godzilla. And I, you know, made lock shots for a multi-ball, which goes all the way back to Firepower or to games like um, Fireball and Wiggler and um, 4 million BC back in the 70s. Yeah. Um, lock balls and then start multi-ball and then shoot shots for jackpots while you've got the three balls in place. So that, 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 that's kind of, uh, you know, a thing that started with high speed and move forward. And then the whole storytelling aspect. Um, so that's, that's amazing. And <laughs> sorry, there's, that's just, 
my mind's reeling because that is a ton of information. It's amazing. Um, so I'm trying to think. I don't know the timeline super well between high speed and then I know that Pat Lawler came in kind of the late 80s. But if I understand correctly, didn't you kind of bring him in and work after hours with him on Bonsai Run to kind of I, – I, I know that you had some some way of bringing him in. I just don't know what the time is from high speed to then. Those are all relevant to the story. Okay. Um, after High Speed finished, I was a little burnt out. I was in there as a contractor. I never went back to work for Williams. I did Space Shuttle and High Speed on contract. I was a little burnt out and sort of, um, um, you know, not doing a lot. Steve had me penciled in for his next game which at the time was called F-111. Yeah. Um, and Paul DeSalt was the software manager at Williams. He um, programmed games like Phoenix, like Blackout, like Alien Poker. Um, and he was, he was my first boss. Okay, he was running the software department. I worked for him. Yeah. And he had left Williams... Um, after everything was was dying in the early 80s um, and was working in a company called Nuvitech. And Nuvitech was developing a bowling system, a, a new high-tech, you know, cutting-edge bowling system for Brunswick that actually operated the pin setters and, you know, had the computer displays and kept score. This was the first system that showed, you know, graphics and and animations for when you did things that were successful. Uh, Pat Lawler was programming the pin setter. Pat had come from Dave Nutting, where he had worked on, on some of the Bally video games, the Midway video games um, before the, of the early 80s. Um, Richard, and he, Richard and Elaine Ditton, who later did Golden Teed Golf, created cr- incredible technologies um, and have now gone on to be, you know, major, uh, a major force in the slot machine industry. They were working on the uh, game programming of the system. Paul was managing the whole product and they needed help with the operating system in this, in this platform. And he brought me in for a two month project to come in and uh, rewrite the operating system um, for this uh, for this system. So I met Pat, Richard, and Elaine, all working under Paul at Nuvitech. Okay. And Pat tells the stories how we used to go out to lunch every day and play high speed. Okay. Um, and he had a thing for pinball. And had designed a pro a early prototype for a game that was going to be called Wrecking Ball. Okay. Out in his barn, out in Marengo, Illinois. He Pat lives on a on a on a farm. Um, he's not a farmer, but he and his wife Patricia live on uh, five acres, I think it is, out in Marengo, Illinois. And he had. Um, come up with the idea for a vertical play field to go along with a horizontal play field and had designed 
the he had designed the bottom play field and put a couple of flippers on a top play field and had a concept of how he would connect them. And he brought me out there and said, I want to show you something. And he showed it to me. Yeah. And um, I thought it was interesting enough and a cool enough idea that I decided let's get together. Let's get a patent on this new revolutionary thing that's going to be the new pinball blockbuster. Yeah. We know how that played out. Um, and let's make the game and then see if we can sell it to Williams. Yeah. Um, so I am in awe at all of the home development resources and that in 2023, you can buy all the parts and buy an electronic system with a complete software package. Yeah. Okay. And make your own pinball machine. And lots of people, lots of people are doing it. And it's incredible. Yep. Um, back in, in that day. There were there was nothing, and so not only did um, to do this did we need to get the existing Williams Electronics boards, which I knew a couple things about to develop a program for. Um, we bought a Road Kings, new in the box, so we could get the the hardware boards. Mm-hmm. And so we could get a, a whole harness. If it wasn't for our game, but it was a whole harness with all the wire colors in it yeah. that we could use to try and wire up our prototype game. And then um, I'm trying to think what happened in the development arena. I think I, I think I talked to Williams and they lent me a, a debugger board. And I interfaced it to a PC and wrote the software to make the board uh, integrate to what was a PC. Yeah. Uh, Williams was using a VAC 750 at the time um, to develop their games. And um, so Pat and I, you know, Pat finished his job at Nuvitech, finished his bowling pin setter left Nuvitech and we worked for probably nine months, maybe 12 months on this um, in, um, in a studio apartment that I rented when Eugene and I closed VidKids. Um, Eugene and I did uh, Robotron and Blaster in an office on Halstead Street in Chicago. Okay. When Eugene went back to college, I took the stuff that I wanted to still be able to use to do development work and didn't have room for it in my apartment. So I rented a, I had a two bedroom apartment on the 12th floor. I rented a studio apartment on the ninth floor and had a little workshop there. And so Pat and I built Bonsai, built Wrecking Ball, which was the prototype in that apartment. And once we got it completed, we brought in the executives from Williams um, Larry Thrasher had been brought in as president of the company at the time. Um, he came from the automotive business. And Larry and Neil Nicastro and Ken Fidesna and Joe Dillon and I think Eugene and Steve all, you know, from Williams came out to to take a look at Wrecking Ball. 
And they, they, they made a deal to license it from us. And we came in house to do the game, which would be Banzai Run. Yeah. Based on that game. And Ken would later tell me that they, that he had no interest in buying that game and, and didn't really care whether Williams made that game or not, but that he bought the game to get me back inside the company. Oh, really? So that, that was a pretty, it was a pretty cool thing to hear. That's cool. um, we made Banzai Run. I'm proud of the game. I love the game. It was commercially okay and far short of, of any expectations that, that anyone had for the game. And there was never a second one. And our patent, um, halfway through its life, we decided not to renew it because there was going to be no economic value to it. Yeah. But, uh, but now I am back inside uh, California Avenue. Um, they invited Pat to do, to, to, they invited Pat to work at Williams after the game and he signed a contract and went and worked on um, Whirlwind and I'm sorry, Earthshaker and then Whirlwind. And at the same time, I took the task of rewriting a whole new operating system for the next generation. Okay. And so during the year and a half that Pat did those games, I did the new operating system and we got together to do Funhouse as the first game on the new platform. And by the way, I love your shirt. For those that aren't here with me, you've got a Funhouse. It is just a picture of Funhouse from collar to belly button. It is, it is amazing. I want to point out, because this is one game that is kind of attributed as the first game with modes. It didn't really have like a wizard mode, but it, you 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 work with these. You, you go kind of through the the tasks to get the the frenzy. And was was that always kind of the goal? Was try to start making modes, or was it just kind of like an aha moment moment as you're making Funhouse? It kind of falls back to a few games before where they started doing random feature awards. Okay. Um, um, Earthshaker, I think, had one. I know Whirlwind. Whirlwind definitely had one with uh, somebody that sounded like uh, Pat Bertram, um, the guy from Green Acres. And, well, looky here. Um, and so it, it, we were sort of in a, a um, setup, which was, which was a, which actually back it up to space shuttle. Okay. Okay, back it up to Space Shuttle. Space Shuttle, we had, you spelled out S-H-U-T-T-L-E on the, on the six stand-up targets and the drop target in the middle. Um, and you won, an, won, you won an award, which was an, a special, an extra ball, lots of points, less, 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 less points. And, um, and, and then that, that feature got changed by a very hard-to-make shot so that once it was set, you could work on it. And in space shuttle, if you got to the last um, ball and you and you were having a really pathetic game, I would randomly light the extra ball for the feature. I think every ball it, it, it picked a random, a random. It would go two 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 two, yeah, and it would go boom 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 for extra ball. Our German distributor Nova Operate, run by a guy that really um, was critical to the success of Williams. Um, his name's Hans Rosenzweig, and he died recently. Um, 
but he he would handicap our games and when he loved the game okay he would write a big order the line would start producing for germany while they're testing here to get our our less aggressive distributors to take quantities of the games yeah okay um and so the factory would run making these games and we had to we had to six weeks from the end of production at whatever rate we're going, we had to either buy more parts, okay, or, or decide production was over. And Hans, if he loved the game, he would always speculate on the games. Our, our local distributors were not as aggressive. They felt that, um, you know, if they ordered too many, they're going to get stuck with them, then they're going to lose money closing them out. And closing out tends to lead to a downtrend as your customers now stop buying from you, forcing you to close out the next model. Yeah. So it, it was a bad, a bad word in the business. Um, Hans embraced that extra ball feature that that after space shuttle, every game had to have it where it would, you know. Yeah give you give the give the lesser player more time and it was a battle we fought in pinball because of the replay because of the replay that a good player could play forever and not pay we were always trying to balance making the game enough there um but not let the good player be able to run with it and and replay boost eventually conquered the big player where the replay score would start going up. Um, but until we started using that mechanism, oh, by the way, um, alphanumeric displays can now let you change the replay score in the computer, not the operator. Okay. And Steve and I developed automatic replay percentaging on high speed, okay, which... Um, the game would set the replay based on the on the overall quality of the players. Um, but back to Hans and and the um, the the extra ball, the pity ex they were they were called pity extra balls. Okay. Um, and it also um, every game starting with Earthshaker or Whirlwind had to have a randomized feature that could deliver that. Um, which became lovingly inside the company called stupid German feature. So, such as what's your, you know, wh which hole, which shot is your stupid German feature. Yeah. Um, but um, Funhouse's stupid German feature was a mystery mirror. Okay. And um I don't think we ever lit the extra ball on it, by the way. I, I, I don't think you did either. I, yeah, I was, I was, um, every other one after it did. Um, I, I was, I was always trying, you know, holding the line of trying not to cheapen the games. Okay. And so, um, that brings us to grace period, right? Yeah. Um, I invented the grace period on a shot where when a shot is lit and you shoot it while it's lit, if the light happens to go out, okay, you're still going to get credit for that shot. And, you know, when you turn the light out, you start a timer. If the set, Even though the light's not on, if the timer's still running, okay, you get credit for it. Um, 
And the first free ball because you didn't do anything was flight insurance. No, actually, flight insurance was the first bozo. We're gonna we're gonna not let your ball in because you were bad. Okay. And F fourteen only did it on the third ball if you were having a bad game, kind of like the the lighting the extra ball on the third ball. Yeah. Um. And and you know that worked okay on F fourteen, and somewhere some of the programmers started doing that on every ball of every game. If you had a bad ball. We're going to give it back to you. That drove, that didn't help the bad players very much in it, but it helped the good players when they had a bad ball and they got to have three good balls per game instead of three balls, however they went. And, and I was on the, the, this is ruining pinball side of it because I was always, we're trying to make a game for everybody. We're trying to walk the line where we put it right where it needs to be. And this really messed it up. And it caused a psychology of every, every, everybody wanted to blame the game for everything. So anytime the game did something bad to you, it said, no, no, you can have, you can have, the, you can have the ball back. And the second revision of F-14 when Yagov would kick it right through the flippers, it would give you the ball back. The same thing that, that, that you know, the game did something and, and you weren't, you know, maybe, maybe you weren't up to it. And, and the, our games evolved from electromechanical games where you played a ball for 20 to 30 seconds to where, you know, you're playing balls for minutes. Okay. And we could only raise our price, which is where this story started. Um, by making them make more money in a location taking quarters. Yeah. And as the game time goes up, the amount in the cash box goes down. So I'm trying to walk the line, and Adam's family had no ball saver. Um, I think they put one in Adam's family gold. Okay. Um, Twilight Zone had no ball saver. And by World Cup, which was the next game I worked on, you had to have a ball saver. I, I lost the war. Which is funny because, like, you look at Adam's family and Twilight Zone. Like, Twilight, the first thing that comes to mind is, like, you're not safe whatsoever. On the first plunge, it, it, you either shoot it into the pops or it comes right to your flipper. Whereas World Cup, it's coming right to your flipper regardless because on the plunge. So that's kind of funny. It should have almost been reversed, but, yeah. Right. Well, it, it, was, it wasn't thought out in those terms. I, I, I you know... Part of the let everybody do their thing at Williams, for better or worse, there weren't strictly imposed standards. Okay, if I was running engineering at the time in the early '90s, I probably would have made standards of what we needed to do. The better, the better part is is people do better stuff when they're not constrained and they can dream up other things. Yeah. The bad part is. We had a faction at Williams that, that, you know, wanted to protect the player from everything, which sadly I started. Um, <laughs> space shuttle, you roll halfway up the ramp and come down, it pops the pose to keep the ball from going down the middle. Yeah. So that started a terrible trend of 
Game designers don't have to fix things that make their games play badly. We'll fix it in software. Okay. All right. And 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 there are all every game today is fixing every unfair thing and and giving you balls back because you know we're kind and gentle in pinball. <laughs> and in somebody's basement, we don't care how many minutes you sit on the machine. Yeah. Okay, the, the, it, it's totally changed. And it's really funny because I play some of these new games and I can't play them. I knew every game and I was good at every game and I learned every game. And it dawned on me, these aren't three-minute experiences. These games are not designed to be three-minute experiences that are good, medium, or bad yeah. and extend to five, six, eight, ten minutes when you rock it. Yep. Um. And so there's been this this incredible evolution over the years into the, you know, what we need to make people love them in their homes. Um, and and all this kindler, gentler stuff is okay because replays, you know, if they're there or not, they're not costing anybody anything. And time on devices and that thing. And these guys have figured out how to get margin. Um, which didn't exist in my day and, and caused all kinds of things that we had to do that that we they don't have to do now and are a great reason that these games are so amazingly amazing and wonderful. So you touched on a game that is iconic in its own right, Adam's Family. That was the first game, if I remember correctly, actually had modes that led to a wizard mode to tour the mansion. Where did that all come about? And would you ever expected it to have made, you know, it's like 22, 23,000 units with gold. Like was, was the hype real there or was it just like, we're, we're making this because that's what we've been told to do. It's, it's great to look at, to dissect that. Um, we were Williams. Okay. And Williams kicked ass Okay, and drove Bally down to, to, to very low levels and drove uh, that's Bally, drove Gottlieb down to very low levels and then resulted in Bally abandoning the business and, and letting our management buy the pinball and video game units of Bally um, for less than the parts they had in inventory. So when Williams bought Bally, all they had to do was make enough games to liquidate the parts into pinball machines. Okay. And they had Bally for free. Wow. Um, but Bally at the time we bought them was a second tier pinball company. We, we were, we were all over them. Um, you know, with our run in the early nineties um, that we're talking about, you know, we, 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 we kind of, uh, buried them and they came in and, and, um, we, some of the belly engineering team came in, Jim Patley came in with the purchase, which was awesome. Jim is a great designer. He brought a lot of know-how and later on they moved me up into management and Jim was my right-hand man. He was out there doing it all. And I worked with him to, to run the division. Um, 
the Bally crew that they bought in did some Bally titles, moved all the hardware, and Neil decided it was time to make the to rebuild the Bally brand. And so Pat, we licensed Adam's family. Roger Sharp got the license for us. Pat, you're going to do the game, and you're going to do it under the Bally banner. And I'm telling you, this was this was this was a black dark day in the life of the Adams Family Design Team, because we really, I will tell you, we thought if we do the best game we've ever done, it'll probably sell ten thousand units. Okay, because you just we just can't get that much mileage with the game with the Bally moniker on it. Okay. Um, Pat created thing, which was, you know, great thing in the bookcase, um, which, you know, the bookcase came right out of the movie thing is so elemental to Adam's family that it had to be there. And we were working on the game with a set of rules and like high speed as we were working we could not get the game to have the right balance and mix of everything. And high speed went through this, this stage where Steve and I were yelling at each other and not talking to each other. And, um, you know, we, we, we had some, uh, some, some executive therapists come work with us to, to keep things on track. And we eventually got there. Um, and Adam's family was the same way. And Adam's family was had an early milestone of having a showable game ready for the premiere of the movie, which was in Los Angeles. Okay. And we had gotten to the game to this point. We had gotten to the game to this point where we had a full game, full art, everything on it. And the rules and software were okay. They were, you know, and, and, and they were fine to bring it to a movie premiere and, and show people for the first time. Yeah. But we, we, we didn't, we thing thing was in the game way too much. And it, it just was a long, slow mechanism and we just didn't have it. And Roger Sharp will tell you the story because Roger, you know, was the licensing guy who got the license and was a point person. Um, and we went to LA, we were on the Rick D's radio show from six to 10 in the morning. Um, and hammer was there. Um, MC hammer, who oh, yeah. did the Adams family theme. He was, you know, he was there and it was a great brush with greatness. Um, and we showed the game there and, and again, it, it was, it was, you know, we, we weren't going to fulfill the 10,000 game prophecy and we just kept working at it and and again there's a lot of frick there there was a lot of friction there was a lot of friction there was there was a lot of friction between the designers and the programmers often often um just because partially the designers grew out of being the producers, you know, video games have a producer. There's a programmer, there's an artist, there's whatever. 
the designers were the created the design and the ideas and were the producer. They they had the view and were in control of everything that happened. And the programmers, you know, pre-Eugene, actually pre-Randy Pfeiffer. Randy Pfeiffer did the first Williams system and did Flash. Okay. And um, and he was a guy, you know, that that was going to do more and different because the realm of what was being done wasn't known when Randy did Flash or when Eugene did Firepower or when I did High Speed. Um, and so there was friction between Pat and I at that time. And, and Pat and I had less friction than other design teams. And we did four consecutive, for me, it was four consecutive games with Pat. Um, although he did two between Bonsai Run and Funhouse. Um, but we were we were just struggling, and we just kept on moving the pieces and moving the pieces, and finally, you know, created a great game. Um, but it was it we 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 were saddled with Bally. We had a game that just wasn't cutting it. Maybe a month before it had to be finished, and the rest is history. Uh, after we worked it out, and again, it um, once we started putting it out and it was making $400 a week in 1980 or 92. Yeah. Um, and it, and eighth week, ninth week, 10th week, 11th week, it's making $400 a week at a particular arcade. Um, boy, we knew we were onto something, you know, this was, this was the players weren't letting it go at the level that they would, they were contending to be on the machine. Yeah. And, um, you know, it got near the record and our friend Hans Rosenzweig in Germany went and bought enough games to get from whatever they had sold to be just one over the record of eight ball, which was 20,230. Okay. And so the original run was 20,231. And then there were a thousand gold games made. Um, like a lot of games, that both runs could have run longer, but we had the six-week rule. Yeah. And the gold was one of the first times a six-week rule was ever broken, where they restarted a game to make a thousand games, made it a premium. You know, you know, was the glimpse of what they're all doing now where we'll make a nicer game. And it was really just superficially nicer. Um, and we'll charge more money and we'll make a big, we'll put numbered plates on it and make a big deal out of it. Um, so that was that. That's awesome. And then you guys then went into Twilight Zone, which was a great follow-up to Adam's family. Um, I, I guess, how did that one come about? All right. What did I say at the top of this? Designers are insecure. Yeah. Pat feed it, felt he needed some new innovation, and that innovation for Twilight Zone, um, in, in initially before the other things like the gumball machine and the Powerball, that innovation was we're going to make the games bigger. You know, it's not going it, to it's not going to be that wide body size. It's going to be a a size in between, which was, I think, what Big Game and Cheetah, the the Stern game. No, Big Game was big. It was Cheetah that went to the 
yeah. the Twilight Zone size. Big game was big game. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, he did that, and all, all of a sudden we're back in the margin. You know, if you make a game with two more square feet, you're going to shovel two more square feet of stuff on the game. Yep. Um, and so we went to work on that project. Um, it's a game. It, it's the most frustrating pinball machine I ever worked on. Not because it was difficult. Um, although it was, and there are modes where you can trick the game into thinking there's a Powerball there when it's not. Uh, um, but because we could not get the left side drain, we had the bumpers and the drain on the left side. Yeah. We could not get that to work right. It was either too liberal we closed it off. We closed it off. I think when we initially did it, in the good players, you know, it, it, we're, we're, we're destroying it top to bottom. And we opened it up and tried to adjust it. And Pat tried to put rubber here and there and everywhere. And when it was open up, it was a really mean, vicious game. Um, and for great pinball, it's finding that balance. Twilight Zone to make money in an arcade or a bar was not a great pinball. Um, but to the collecting community, it shows when you take a shovel and start shoveling components and features and things into a game that, um, boy, are they going to want to have that game. And it, it, it's a, you know, it's a glimpse at where we are now. Um um, but I, you know, I, I had one of every one of my games when I downsized, I got rid of some of them. And then when I moved to an apartment, I got rid of almost all the rest of them. And I, 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 I did not hug Twilight Zone out the door. Um, it is so revered in this community and it's a game that I just, um, you know, I, I just am so frustrated we could never get it right. You know, it, it was it never it wasn't what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be better than Adam's family. And it was it was like again, we couldn't get it where it made a lot of money, and that was our job. Not not to make collectors go, we love your game. Our job was to make games that make lots of money and sell lots of games. Which is funny because some people revere Twilight Zone way above Adams, oh, yeah. and it it just between that and it's it sold fifteen thousand units. It was very very respectable. And and again, it, the the last couple thousand were overshoot because of the hype, which were maybe not closed out, but but squeezed out slowly and painfully because the the market didn't want them. Um. And I'm approached by collectors who talk about Twilight Zone and want me to sign a flyer or their lower arch or their back class. Um, and I don't, I don't say to a single one of them that, that you know, I, 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 I'm glad you love it. Um, I'm happy to support you and it, but uh, I, I just cringe every time I think about that game. So after Twilight, you, you kind of stopped. So at least on Pinside, it said that you did World Cup Soccer, 
and you did Jackbot, and that was kind of the last couple games you did for Williams Valley. And then what what did your role transition to while you were there? Okay. World Cup um, was a game being developed by John Papaduk. Um, I think Jack Scalin did the mechanicals on it. Uh, Matt Coriel was the programmer. And uh, I think Kevin O'Connor did the art. Yep. Um, that was a team that I was not a part of. Okay. Um, and they had a working Whitewood, and John's John Papaduke's father got deathly ill, and John left the project and the company to tend to his father. Um, and um, so Matt asked if I would, you know, come in and help him with the software. And, uh, and if I could, you know, help, you know, work the rules of the game. And I sort of came in, you know, Jim Patla again was there. So he was probably the, um, the game design lead on it. Um, as far as making, doing all the things a game designer has to do to work with the mechanical guys, get the parts made, get it through the system, publish the drawings. Um, and I kind of came in as, uh, as lead programmer working with Matt and co-designer, um, where John had a, had a, had a, had a great layout. Okay. We didn't change a. I didn't change a thing in the layout except that, um, the ramp that came around from the lock mechanism okay. had a plastic ramp that went behind the flippers and okay. came back and dumped the ball by the right flipper instead of, I think it comes out on the left flipper. So kind of like on Blackwater 500. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and the ramp was positioned so that when you try to reach in to lift up the, the uh, lower arch to lift up the play field, you got this plastic ramp and, and had to worry about breaking it. Yeah. Um, and so the only change that Jim and I made to the play field was just cutting the ramp and, and delivering it to the left flipper. Um, and then we we took some of the rules that he had in there, and and Matt and I really created a mostly a new set of rules. I think we kept the multi-ball rules, which um, would would it would lock the balls up in the ramp on the left side, yeah. and then it would light final draw to start multi-ball, and then it would start multi-ball. Um, and I don't remember if they had an objective or not, but. Um, it's shoot, shoot ramp, then shoot goal, and shoot ramp, and shoot goal. Well, that, that's that, those are the rules that. Oh, that that's what you did. Okay. I'm not sure what John had there. Okay. Um. But we we ended and 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 we made everything being about all the get hitting the ball in the goal and getting excited. World Cup is the game. If when anyone says I want to put a pinball in my basement. I tell them, find an old World Cup. That's the game I would recommend. And I, I, I had two or three of them, and they are still in my friends' basements um, because that is such a instant gratification game. 
you know, you, you're flipping the balls without skill and they're going up the middle mostly. Yep. And it's scoring goals and the crowd's cheering and the announcer's announcing. Um, Tim Kittrow did an amazing job on vocals on that. And and we worked with Tim on those vocals and he, he was amazing. And I'm really, really sad. I ran into him at an event somewhere recently and introduced myself you know, Larry DeMar, I work with the world. He he doesn't even remember working on that game. Really? He does not remember working on that game. You know, uh, of course, um, um, you know, he's legendary for the Midway sports games. Yep. Um, but he does not remember. And he did. He, he killed it. Yeah. He killed it. And then again, Matt and I had to do magic to to make it sound like an announcer, not sound like um uh, Max Headroom, yeah, um, which is kind of what happens when you start just firing off speech calls. Um, but it, it, it was it was a great great team effort, and um, yeah, Ke- Kevin did the back glass. It's beautiful. Um, we made Striker their mascot into a star, which the world which FIFA didn't do. Yeah, uh, is it FIFA? FIFA? FIFA. FIFA. FIFA didn't make Stryker into a star. They created him. They gave us all of the material ahead of the World Cup uh, as far as a style guide. We used him. He was lovable, huggable. <laughs> and uh, it's really funny that he was not a brand. He was, he was not relevant. Nobody would associate looking at that image with World Cup soccer. Um, but, but. The exact antithesis of Twilight Zone. It didn't have the commercial success of some of the biggest games, but I love how that game, how that game came out. Yeah. Um, and again, uh, I can't take anything away from John. It's his masterpiece, but I got to paint a few brushstrokes in there um, as we went through it. And it's a great game. I still own that game. When you talk about friends having that still in their basement, my wife's like, you're never getting rid of that game. It, I think it does everything for not only the the beginner, but it also does it for the expert. It, it's, it's, a deep, it's a deep, challenging game. Yep. And, um, you know, it, and it's got the, the, it's got the perfect wizard mode. Yep. Um, I love that. Going up against Germany and finally, and then just it dumping all the balls on and just attacking and attacking. I, there's no other wizard mode like it, and it's amazing. Now, if, if anybody knows and has the home ROMs, which certainly you can find, they're out there. If you push and hold the buy-in button when you start, when, when you're anytime during the game, you push and hold the buy-in button, it will go into the wizard mode. Oh, it, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. You have to have the home ROMs in okay. But with, do you have the home runs? I don't think I do. Okay, well, we, I'm going to have to find them. I might know a guy. Um, but with the home runs installed, you can push and hold the buying button. Same thing for Twilight Zones, Lost in the Zone. Okay. Um, same thing for Adam's Family Tour of the Mansion. I didn't know any of this. This is the first time I've ever heard this. I've been doing this for a decade. Okay, well, I, I made home runs for all these games, and it wasn't for wide distribution, and, and we didn't. You know, early on, there was no no free information exchange over the Internet, although there was RGP on, on Usenet. Yeah. It was a Usenet group that, that had a lot of us interacting and, and ended up recruiting people 
into our companies. Um, Duncan Brown came to us definitely, you know, through the Usenet group. Um, um, Kevin Martin. Okay. Kevin Martin. It, when when Kevin was on RGP, he was an RGP busybody. He literally responded to every post anybody made and lowered the quality of that group by three runs. Um, he ended up working at Data East as a result of the Data East pinball and confessed that his behavior was solely to get the job in the business. So... Um, we we exchange stuff like that, but I, I'm sure the home runs for all those games are out there, and um, and they should each have a start the wizard mode by holding in the button, and they they all clear your scores at the end of the wizard modes so that you know it doesn't get you anywhere for yeah. for high score purposes. Um, that's awesome. That's a, a tidbit for your listeners. That's great. That's great. So so when what I. Ended up happening because you were still at Williams till they closed the doors, correct? Um, Ish. Let's say that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's say that I, I actually left uh, Labor Day and they closed on October twenty fifth. Okay. So you were there pretty much up to the end. We're we're talking days, a couple of months. Um, so what did your role become after Jackpot? Were you kind of just overseeing people or? Actually, before Jackpot, I was put as director of engineering. So I had I had everybody doing work on pinball, um, mechanical, sound, electrical, um, game design, software, um, um, the quality control, the manuals, uh, t- uh, technical writing was all was all one group under me. And Jim Patla was at my side running that group. Um, the game Jackpot came to be because we hit a point where there was going to be a perceived hole in production. It's a recurring theme. Yep. Um, um, no fear was delayed. And no fear was going to miss its targeted date. And three or four months, Jim was waving red flags that we have to do something to fill the hole in production. And so I suggested, well, there's two things. One is we had a hole in production. Two, we were losing our audience. Okay, The, the the games had and were evolving and were, were so involved that the beginner players were, were totally not staying or playing. And so we needed a new game. My concept was let's take an old, let's take the only thing we can make in time, kind of like super defender. The only thing we can make in three or four months is a game that's done. So let's reskin a game. And I picked Pinbot, which would become jackpot with the notion is it's got this bank of five targets in the middle and a flailing player is going to just hit them. And as long as I make good stuff happen up the middle, maybe I can, can get newer people to hang on to the game. Yeah. And so uh, the jackpot rules were so much kinder and gentler. 
Um, any five shots on either bank would give you the five entire columns to open the visor, let you shoot up the middle to start multi-ball. Um, we, um, you know, and, and then we built a game around it, around gambling. And it was a real um, interesting segue because I started using gambling probability math concepts in the features that were gambling features and in Casino Run, which was the wizard mode in the game. Well, it was one of the wizard modes of the game. Again, Casino Run was was four features completed to get Casino Run. So it was not Tour the Mansion or Lost in the Zone or Final Match. Real regular people with a good game could get the Casino Run. And then there was Megavisor, which was the real wizard feature. Uh, in jackpot. And I was, um, I would work all day in my management role. And then at six o'clock, everyone went home and I worked from six till 12, one, two, whatever programming jackpot. Um, and, uh, you know, we did the game. I, I, it's a game I like, I'm happy with, um, didn't sell a lot of games. And, uh, you know, we were, we were, Clearly in that period, clearly in that period of declining sales where, you know, World Cup, I think, was probably seven or eight thousand. Jackpot was, you know, three or four thousand. No fear was about the same. And, and uh, it, it went down from there. So um, I don't know if it achieved the objective of getting weaker players to want to play pinball, um, but it was a game that was really liked by the really good players yeah. um, for the for the difficult side of the game. Especially those super jackpots, too, and, and some of the quirkiness a little bit to the rules of locking certain balls a certain wing and getting double jack, uh, super jackpots. Right. Yeah, well, and again... Uh, I'm a player, so I'm, you know, a lot of the things we come up with are you do something cool and don't get rewarded. You go, oh, well, let's, let's reward that. Yeah. And, um, and so features like that come about that way. Um, so what made you decide, I, you know, there was, I, I know when Williams closed, it kind of was like resetting the clock. They kind of said, hey, if you want to work in slots, you're going to have to start back at square one with us. I know Stern was kind of taking their pick of the crop. What what made you decide to just not keep going with with pinball? Um, it really turned out to be um, what happened when they closed pinball. Um, from nineteen ninety six to ninety eight. I was working over slots and pinball and I was learning how to make cool slot machines with some of the old pinball guys who, you know, we, we laid off people, we downsized. So some of the people that were doing pinballs in my department, we moved over and they were working, making new, new kinds of slots. Um, and in night, so, so I, I, I had a background in slots in 99 when they fired everybody from pinball. Okay. They fired 
all these guys that were brilliantly talented people like Scott Slomiani, Duncan Brown, Al Thomas, Ben Gomez. Um, and I couldn't ever hire them to work for me because of non-solicitation agreements that I had as a manager of the company. Okay, so under no circumstances could I try and go do what Eugene and I did with the people that were working for me. Yeah. Um, and so Al, of course, and Al Thomas, I could do another podcast twice as long talking about Al Thomas. He's brilliant. He's crazy. He's a great guy. And, um, and he was all over me, you know, we got to start a company. Because Al, Al was working, Al was still in gaming, as was Ben. But, um, you know, he saw that he, he, he had worked with, um, with Scott and Duncan on gaming projects and felt, you know, they could all do it. Come on, let's all start a company. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I looked around. They're really... Um, pinball Williams pinball was done. I believe Stern was not going to last real long in the way Williams had, had, had met its demise. And so I, I didn't think there was a future in pinball and, and Gary Stern pinball was on life support for a lot of years before anybody could conclude you know, this is solid and this is a business. Yeah. And I always, my vision is the best thing that happened to Gary Stern was Jersey Jack. Because Jack decided we're going to shovel all the stuff in the machine and charge a high price while Gary was still in the no profit margin mode. And once Stern changed to the Jersey Jack model, everyone in pinball starts making money now. Yeah. Um, so I, I did not expect Stern to survive. Um, Williams had asked me to go interview with the gaming department and, um, I ended up following the Al Thomas route and, uh, LED gaming was started with myself, Scott and Duncan. And Al and Ben decided not to join the group after all, once we got it started. And each of them came to join the company once we were, were on our way in, in making games. So we had the five of us at one point, um, as Al had envisioned. And then uh, one by one, Ben and Al went back to the mothership working for WMS Gaming. Um, and, and we went in a different, different way. So obviously things have changed. It's been 20 plus years since you've been in the industry and whatnot. Do you, seeing everything, you, I mean, like you said, we, we started this out by you were playing Godzilla, Keith's masterpiece, and seeing where pinball has come from. Do you, does, is there a part of you that would, wants to get back in it? Do you feel like you've said everything that needs to be said for pinball? I just, I feel like you're a very great asset to to the industry. And I know a lot of people say, I don't know if you'll say it about yourself, but I'll say it for you. <laughs> um, would you, would you ever take another opportunity to work on a pinball project? That's a question for another time. 
Um, I started another company during COVID called AdsWorks, and we are supplying content to the online slot machine industry. It's legal in six states in the U.S., and we set up a company to deliver games like my studio with Scott and Duncan were making into those states for online gaming, and it has become um, a significant uh, endeavor. We are doing great, but it is taking up so much time that um, that there's no time to think about pinball. And when when you're developing a game, it's it's to do it well. It's almost all immersive. Um, when I went into management at Williams, there was a vision that I was going to help people and and add special sauce to the games and i i was never i i i sprinkled a little bit of dust here and there but i i never was able to have that effect to really improve games with what i could think of or develop because i wasn't immersed into it i i was i was you know i had a hundred people working for me and eight projects at a time going on all right, and there really wasn't the the just ruminating and thinking and, and going over and over and over and and you know for me half of the best ideas and features came when I woke up from a dream or were in the shower. Okay, and that only happens when you're immersed in something. So um, there's no chance now, um, and and. Probably as my company gets on its feet to not need me as much as it does, um, I don't. I think the same problem comes to getting involved in pinball. I don't have the hours to to put into it that will that will result in really cool stuff. Okay, and I think trying to to say. Go go to a pinball company once or twice a week and and you know um, do it. And the other thing that I learned that I've been learning the hard way because I I I'm a good pinball player and most of the games that are being made today I can't play very well. Well, we were designing games for a three minute experience, and and you know. In three minutes, not much happens. You know, not, not much happens in these games. There's too many building blocks everywhere to do 25 things. Um, that that my even my my locked my mind locked into the games isn't there right now. Um, and so, um, I'm, I enjoy watching them. I enjoy seeing them. Um, I'm hoping maybe one day I'll get to have the time to enjoy playing them again. Yeah. I have fun with the nineties games. Um, I have, I have fun playing some of these games some of the time, but, uh, but it, it's, uh, it's going to stretch. Well, and before we started talking, you said you've downsized your collection. What's, what's the one game you've got in your collection? Um, my collection. Well, I've, I've got, a couple dozen at friends' houses. Okay. One game in my apartment is Adam's Family Gold Number Two, and then I have a main cabinet, and uh, 
our grandkids play the main cabinet more than the Adams family. But it is great to see at Expo all the new young people playing pinball because that wasn't happening five, six years ago. I know, it's crazy. They just did the Stern Pro Circuit on Tuesday night, and it was Escher versus Jared, and Escher's 20 and Jared's 19, and it's like, where, where are these kids coming from? But it's, it's awesome to see this passion and this love, and they're playing at such a high level, too. We saw Josh, Josh and Zach Sharp playing when they when they weren't good and could barely see over the, the uh, glass. And it was the first IFPA tournament, which um, I think Funhouse was uh, so it was around 1990, maybe 91, um, where all of a sudden Josh could play pinball. He 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 didn't you know he didn't. He didn't uh, win anything or place or anything in that tournament, but I saw him have a comeback ball, you know, of, of 10 minutes on a game that it's like, okay, okay, here's somebody you got to watch. Um, and uh, these, these, these kids are amazing. They are. Escher, I mean, what the hell? <laughs> what the hell? That's great. That, that, I think you've summed it up perfectly for a lot of us, whether you're competing or not against him. That's that's perfectly put. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. Well, I want to thank you, Larry. I know this has been at least a year in the making, having you come on. I really appreciate you taking time. I know you're busy, super schedule, or you're, your schedule's super busy, uh, but I really do thank you for coming on. Um, got any last thoughts before I shut off the recording? No, thank you, Josh. Um, this was a lot more fun than I expected it to be. Uh, so thanks for staying on me to do it. Definitely. Well, like I said, thank you so much. Holy crap, that was almost two hours long. It was amazing every second of it. I know this sounds a little raw. I do apologize. Like I said, I was recording this off my phone via Zencaster in some corner at Expo as people were moving around. So you're gonna hear you heard some coughing, you heard some people talking in the background. I like his natural ambiance. I guess it is what it is. Man, that's I'm just fooling myself. But overall, I love the interview. There are some names in here I wanted to point out. Uh, Steve Kordek, he was instrumental in the 60s and 70s. Uh, some of his games are the most beloved that are out there. Stars and Nine Ball. Um, Steve Epstein, you know, God rest his soul. He just passed away this last couple of years. And uh, he was very pivotal in all this as well. Also with bringing pinball to New York for the Broadway Arcade. Um, he was a close friend of Roger Sharp's. I, I assume you know who Roger Sharp is. We talked about Roger, Keith Elwin. It's amazing how a lot of these people tie together. And you can kind of see the evolution of pinball. And it was kind of cool to hear him talk about the old guard moving into the new guard. Because now they're kind of the old guard. And we have the new guard. That's Keith Elwin, Eric Benier, Scott Denisi, all these wonderful people. And the future of pinball, listening, you know, talking about Escher Leskoff. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I had. It was definitely worth the two and a half year wait. Um, for those that want our regular show, we will be back. We are aiming for this Thursday to record. And Scott will be back with me. We're going to talk everything Pinball Expo. I know you're wanting to hear about everything that happened there, but I'm going to hold off till then. Uh, I want to thank you. If you want to get a hold of us at Loser Kid Pinball for our socials for Facebook, Instagram, 
for uh, TikTok, Twitch, YouTube, all those, Twitter, X, whatever. Uh, if you would like to email us, we are loserkidpinballpodcast at gmail.com. I want to thank those that came up and talked to me on Expo and just said how much that our content means to them. Uh, sometimes it kind of gets flung out into the internet. I see the numbers, but sometimes we don't get feedback. And honestly, lately we've been receiving a lot of feedback and I want to thank you guys for that. And gals, we have an amazing amount of women that listen to the show and I want to thank them personally because you women are helping progress pinball and evolve it. Um, and, and it's amazing. It truly is. I, I love to see that pinball is such a diverse group of people that have come together for such a wonderful little niche thing. Um, like I said, thanks again for tuning in.